Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults living in Montreal who meet together to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The podcast today is a sermon from our series on the basic beliefs of Christianity. Hope you enjoy. So this is, like I said, the complimentary sermon that comes alongside chapter one of the book. And so we're going to keep doing this, but what you will discover tonight and for the rest of the weeks to come is the same thing that so many blockbuster movies have taught us. The book is much better, right? So tonight I will do my best to summarize, condense, and kind of uh, show a different facet of the theme of chapter one. And, And chapter one was called The Right Approach. It was essentially about how do we, when we're looking at like, the question of seeking after God, who is God, does God exist? How do we even approach such a topic? How do we go about looking at it through a Christian lens? Now you'll discover in this book, the book itself does touch upon certain proofs or, or certain evidences for the existence of God and for the, the, uh, the unique character of Christ. But it doesn't, the, the point of the book is not to go into some deep, uh, thesis as to these, it's not a apologetics book in that way. It's not making a defense for the faith from the sense of someone saying, look at the evidence we have. It's rather taking the approach of saying, if you want to get a good, if you want to seek after God, this is what Christianity teaches about God. And so look at it from that lens. By the end of this book, you're not going to be able to come out of saying, I have all of these you know, hard proofs for the existence of God. But what you are going to say is, I have, I have a great understanding about what Christianity teaches, and I have below that the reasons as to why they teach that. So that's kind of what we're going to end with. And so this, the right approach, is not the right approach of saying, okay, let me t- tell you all the reasons as to why we think God exists. It's more saying, when you're approaching Christianity as you know, you're curious about what Christianity is about, know from the outset that this is what the journey should look like. So as we go along that, it is a difficult and somewhat, I don't know, like just like a thick quagmire of a question when you look at like, does God exist? Who is God? What is he like? It's a, it's a deep question. And quite often we get lost in the midst of it all because there's just so much out there and you don't know what you can trust. Uh, there was a, uh, a few years back, my wife uh, was making a dish, some sort of, um, uh, I think she was pickling chilies or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. But we bought ch- a cheap bag of um, really big, what are the ones that are not that, expen- that not that spicy? It's either habanero or jalapeno. I always get it wrong. Which one is the not that ex- the spicy one? Jalapeno, right? Jalapenos are not that spicy. So we bought a bag of these things and she was slicing them up and slicing them up and she spent, it was a bag, so it took a while to slice them up. Uh, and then she kind of popped them somewhere else and then she's like, my fingers are tingling. And then she, and I, and I was sitting on the couch at the time, I was like, oh, that's weird. And then she's like, no, my, my fingers are starting to really hurt. Uh, and what happened, we, we kind of tried to go to bed and then she's like, I can't sleep. My fingers are getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and what had obviously happened is that the chili oil had gotten under her finger bed, fingernail beds or something like that and was really burning. Uh, and so now we're up. It's like past midnight and we have to figure this out. 
And so, so many like recipes and you know, cooks out there will tell you, oh, just wear gloves. But they don't tell you what happens if you don't, what to do if you don't wear gloves. We'd already made that mistake. They offered no advice to those in our situation. So now I'm Googling, how do you fix this? Like, you know, burning fingers, chili, search. Uh, and what we discovered is a whole bunch of answers. Um, and we just started trying all these different things. But the problem was, everyone seemed to have a different answer. And worse than that, some of the answers even contradicted each other. Some of them said, okay, you gotta use soap. And the other would say, no, no, don't use soap, don't use soap. Some of them saying, okay, uh, it'll be bad, but, but put your hands under hot water, because hot water dissolves the blah, 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 blah. The other, other guy saying, no, 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 like, stay away from hot water. And so we are trying our best to figure this out, and we have all of these contradictory answers, and it just became this huge mess. Who do you believe? How do you know what's true? How do you know what's not? The, the age we live in today, it's no wonder so, so many people are so skeptical. The birth of the internet gave way to this era that we live in now where the promise of the internet was that it was going to make truth accessible to all. That now we have democratized the truth where everyone has access to it, but that's not the case at all. All the internet has done is made the truth indistinguishable from the lies. We don't know what to believe anymore. We, we, we look out there in the world and we see so many answers that it just gives way to skepticism. It gives way to cynicism. And I'm reminded of, um, as John Stott was, uh, that the, there's an interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, where Jesus speaks uh, about being the truth. And Pontius Pilate scoffs and says, what is truth? And then he leaves without ever bothering to stick around for the answer. That kind of is the spirit of the age today of, you know, people don't believe there is truth anymore. People don't believe there is an answer. And so if we're seeking after God, do we even dare? Do we even dare to hope that there is an answer, an answer, that will be the right answer? Excuse me, I'm going to be drinking a lot tonight. <coughs> so tonight we're going to be looking into some of the, just the way of approaching the Christian faith. And some sermons are going to come back to the idea of, you know, some of the kind of more tangible reasons as to why we hold on to <clears throat> some of these truths that we do hold on to. But tonight, the, the point of it is partly just to answer why is the question so hard to answer? Why is it so hard to know if God exists or not and what his character is like? And then the other part of the sermon is going to be looking at the way in which the Bible presents the answer of how you can know God and know about God as well. And so it begins at the very beginning of the Bible with the opening words of the Bible, which is, in the beginning, God. And it sets the stage, those four words kind of set the stage for a precedent which is to come, which is that we have a God who takes initiative. He is the first one to move. In the beginning, God created. God moved. God did. When there was nothing, he began something. And that sets the tone. Christianity is a religion in which God takes initiative where he steps forward to do something. The Bible actually is not about discovering anything about God. It is showing us that God is reaching out to us already. He hasn't left us in the situation where we kind of have to figure it out on our own. He has left for us a, a huge amount of uh, speaking and acting on our behalf and towards us that we need to listen to as well. There's an interesting story told by David Platt, uh, who had a conversation with other leaders of uh, various faiths 
from around the world. Uh, and he says this conversation began in a sort of a roundtable discussion. And at the very beginning, he's, he remained very quiet. And he allowed the other uh, you know, leaders of the faiths to begin talking about what they believe in, why they believe it, and, and it, what it became was a, was a very much a back and forth discussion between a few of them saying, well, you know, this is where, what we believe and how it's different from what you believe. And this is what we believe, how it's different from what you believe. And then he chimed in towards the end. He said, what do you guys think? Wouldn't it be great if God just came down and came among us and said, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is how you approach me. And all the leaders said, they kind of smiled and said, well, yeah, of course, that would be amazing. We would love that. And he said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me talk to you about what we believe. Because that is the case of a Christian. A Christian worldview comes from the worldview that God has stepped into history and told us what he's like. Jesus Christ is, I said it last week, he is one of the, the very, very few figures in all of history that, that, that bears any clout, at least, that people, when they met him, didn't ask, who are you? They asked, what are you? He had a quality about him that was just otherworldly. It was different. And he is the only one in that list who accepted it when people said, are you God? You're God. And he didn't reject it. He welcomed it. He accepted it. He, he said, yeah, I am. This is essentially what we hold on to about Jesus. We discern from the world around us that God, something of God can be discovered, and the Bible teaches that, that God has left in some sense a, a fingerprint upon this world that, that can be seen in the blueprint of the created order, the blueprint of even our own hearts. That when we look at the world around us, yes, we can see something of God's power, of God's glory, of God's faithfulness. It's just the way that the world is, the way that the universe is. Uh, we can look at certain things and they leave us with the impression that something must be behind this. Something must be above this. This couldn't have just come about doesn't make sense completely. But then we all, oh, sorry, we can even look within our own hearts and our own nature points to this reality as well that we have hungers within us that don't seem to be satisfied by anything in, that this world can produce. And how does that make sense? I mean, I have a hunger for food and food exists and I have a hunger for sleep and sleep exists and I have a hunger for sex and sex exists. But I also have hunger for meaning. I have a hunger for purpose in my life. Ooh, he likes to do that sometimes. Uh, I have a hunger for, I don't know, security. And yet this world, it alone doesn't seem to be able to offer that. Why do I have the hunger? Why do I feel like life is meaningful if it really isn't? Why do I feel that love is real if it, if it really isn't? Why do I feel like humans have dignity and there are such a thing as human rights when a natural world alone certainly wouldn't lead me to that discovery at all. Why do I feel this way? And, and you know, we can look at the world, and the Bible speaks about that, and it speaks about what that is, kind of general revelation is a term that we use for it. But it also kind of leaves us short of a full knowledge of the truth. That scientific inquiry and philosophical uh, musings can only lead us so far. 
the nature of God himself and how we are to have a relationship with him, it requires more. It requires what we speak of as special revelation, where God has to come in and say, this is who I am. He has to say, this is how you approach me. And it's not something that we can discern by our wisdom alone. It's not something that we can get to just using the stuff around us. When God reveals himself to the Israelites, uh, through Moses originally, and then by extension to the Israelites, Moses asks, what should I call you? What's your name? Uh, God uses a very specific name. He says, I am that I am. The, the Jewish language contracts that statement to the, the term Yahweh. God calls himself, I am that I am. And the definition of that word, that phrase, when you break it down, God is saying, I am the uncreated creator. I am pre-existent, immaterial, non-temporal. I exist outside of the created order, and I created everything. I am the source. I am the sovereign. And this is who God is, immaterial, non-temporal, uncreated creator, unmoved mover. And C.S. Lewis rightly points out that if this is who God is, then the way that he would relate, or the way would we would rela relate to him, is not as if he is our upstairs neighbor, that we are in this you know, first floor and he's in the second floor, and we can just kind of have this sort of close relationship with him. He said, no, it would probably be more like the way that Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. What does that mean? He goes on to explain the only way that Hamlet, who is a character in one of the Shakespearean plays, the only way that Hamlet would know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare decided to write himself into the story. And we have examples of authors who have done that over the years, authors who have kind of fallen in love with their own narrative world and have written themselves in as a character because they want to be part of it, you know? They want to play a part. Sometimes they want to rescue. They want to, they want to love. They, they want to love these characters in some way. And so they write themselves into the story. That would be the only way that we would really be able to find out anything about a God like this, we material, him immaterial, is if he was to, in one sense, write himself into the story. And that is what Scripture teaches. The Bible says that God has done that. God has placed himself in our story. He has come into the story to rescue, come in the story to save. He has spoken. He has acted. And may I just say that in terms of all other religions, Christianity really does have a unique position here. No other religion can compare to what we're speaking about here, that a God would step into history to rescue and to save to the degree that it does, that he does in the Christian belief, that God steps in in love. And so Start talks about the three initiatives that God has taken, that God has created, that God has spoken, and that God has acted. And those are the three ways that God has initiated. He has stepped in and begun something. And of all the ways that God has spoken, the way, the way that he has spoken most clearly is through Christ, 
through Jesus. The only way that God has acted, the way that he's acted most powerfully, is through Christ, through Jesus. One of the things that John Stott says in that opening chapter, he says, the Bible reveals a God who long before it even occurred to men and women to turn to him, while they were still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops in to seek until he finds them. This is why an investigation into Christianity is not primarily an invitation to do anything, right? It's a declaration about what Christ has already done. And that's what we find in the opening words of the book of John. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, and then jumping down to verse 14, and then jumping down again to verse 18. This is what is read. This is what is written, excuse me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jumping down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then jumping down to verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who, him, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father. Has, sorry, let me read that again. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Verse 14 is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This means, if we take it literally, as John intends us to, that God has broken in to our world in a unique and pivotal way. Many people would prefer to reduce Christianity down to simple teachings. The ethical teachings of Jesus, the ethical teachings of the Bible, loving your neighbors, you know, being holy, these kinds of things. And that would be enough. That's great. Let's just leave it there. Let's cut away the supernatural, cut away the, you know, the, the claims to soul authority, stuff like that. But if you do that, if you take the actual definitive work of God in history, out of Christianity, you've gutted it completely. If you take the idea of God becoming, the Word becoming flesh, out of the Bible, out of the teachings of Christianity, you have left it hollow and empty, not able to do anything that it claims to be able to do, not, a, not worthy of any attention that we give it whatsoever. John certainly doesn't allow that freedom. The end of the book of John, which Julia read a bit of, if you look just above that, what you find, uh, the verse uh, 21 of chapter 25, is that the right way around? Yeah, sorry. You see the story of Thomas. And the way that the story of Thomas ends is why Thomas declaring, my Lord and my God, to Jesus. My Lord and my God. That is the climax of the book of John. That declaration, my Lord and my God. 
It's not enough that we just take the teachings of Jesus. We must take him as the act of God, the act of self-revelation of God, not only to speak to us, but to act for us as well. Redemption coming through him. Redemption, uh, this is one of the commentators I, I read, says this, redemption is God himself at work in the world, achieving his own goals for repairing the consequences of sin and bringing humanity back into relationship with himself. Redemption is what we're speaking of here. That is what Christianity is about. It is a rescue religion. Now, when I look around the world, at every turn, I see people who are aware of the desperate need that this world has, that we have for transformation. It's everywhere. You see it in the way that the ads you know, try to lure us in with promises of a better life, of higher esteem, of more popularity, whatever it is. You see it as well in the very heartfelt movements of social justice that continue to be you know, heralded and, and, and put forth by different people in the world today. People longing for transformation, people longing for change. People knowing that there's something deeply broken about this world. They, they're searching for a diagno diagnosis. They're searching for a cure. We long for hope in this world. We long for something to hold on to. And the Gospel of John is all about giving us that hope. That prologue that he begins with is all about announcing the hope. Something has happened. Something concrete and definitive has happened. And it's set a marker in history by which we can judge uh, all of life from. That what proceeds from that can be measured by it. It is that pivotal. It is that important. And what he has given us, what God has given us here, is a branch to hold on to. But in order to get that, if we are on the edge of a crumbling cliff and there is a branch above you, what do you need? You need to reach out and grab it. And that's where our response comes in. God has spoken, yes. But have we listened? God has acted, yes. But have we responded? Have we received it? Listen, it is not of small consequence. This question, who is God? What is he like? That is not of small consequence. We as a generation are known for our apathy, for our carelessness. Apathy is deadly. Carelessness will lead to destruction. If you don't care enough to take this question seriously, it can be of absolute dire consequences. And I know that a reluctance to really seek after an answer is not, it's not born out of nothing. It's born out of a reluctance of having to face the answer. Part two of the Chili Fingers story is that in the midst of us frantically searching for how to cure my poor little wife and her tiny burning fingers. Uh, you know, we're trying all these different things, dip them in milk, run them under cold water, try a s salt and sugar rub, all of these different things. There was one thing that I remember, and it was a comment on like Quora or something like that, and someone just said, there's nothing you can do. You just have to wait. And I didn't want to believe it. My wife didn't want to believe it. They just, it was just so flat out honest. They just said, there's nothing you can do. You just have to wait. 
And the more and the more we tried to search out other answers, the more we were coming, I was coming back in my mind to that, that drum, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. And it, I mean, there's a point where we were making it worse. You know, Some of these things you're trying to do, they're actually making it worse. They were more painful to endure. And so what we eventually had to do was just accept that that was the truth. We, I sat there until 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. My wife had her bowl, her hands in a bowl of milk. And every now and then I had to add ice cubes to it and I had to make more ice because while her hands were in the milk, it was tolerable. As soon as she took them out, it started to burn almost instantly. So we just had to keep her hands in milk for what felt like forever. But we just had to wait it out. We just had to wait. And I didn't want to accept it. I didn't want that to be the answer. It, it took a real battle. I mean, I say battle. I'm being dramatic, of course. But it took a battle to get to that place of accepting it. Listen, to really look, after, look for God, it also will be a battle. If God had come into this world and said the thing that, you know, just really actually lined up with culture very nicely, it kind of just felt, you know, perfectly in line with what I wanted to believe about myself anyway, Maybe not battle. But he's God. He's God. Do you really think he has the same opinion as you on things? Come on. And that's the problem. Deep down, we don't want to change. Deep down, we'd rather not look. And the best way to not find an answer is to not really look. If we want to approach the idea of who is God, we have to have a sense of honesty about it. We have to come to the question honestly. Laying aside, the best we can, laying aside our agenda. Look, we're such a skeptical bunch. You know what the only thing we're not skeptical about is? Our skepticism. Why not? Why aren't you skeptical about your skepticism? Why don't you doubt your doubts? What makes them sovereign over you? What makes them reverent, unable to be questioned? You have a bias. You have an agenda. Recognize it. Recognize your skepticism and say, is this something I should really listen to completely? Like, it's good to be skeptical, but come on, with a measure. We must be humble and honest with our search, laying aside our apathy, laying aside our pride, laying aside our agenda as much as possible. Don't come to the question with your mind already made up. And then comes the even harder part than that, is that we must also seek honestly. When you look at Christianity, the end goal of if discovering Christianity, discovering the faith, is not to say, I accept this, but to say, I follow it. I, I, I trust it. I stake my life on it. So there's a point along the journey that that has to come into play. Not only are you going to be able, you're not coming to it just from a rational point of view, but from an existential point of view. I'm going to rest on this. I'm going to trust in this. And to do so means that not only are we examining the faith, but the faith is examining us. We, our life is, needs to be examined in light of the facts. That is difficult. It requires us to be open to change. And we don't really want to change. 
very often. You know, the Gospels, we have, towards the end of the Gospels, each and every one of them, Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, begins to do things that force the hand of the religious leaders. He begins to say things and do things that put the religious leaders in a position. We either have to accept him or kill him. Those are our only two options. He starts to do things and claim things and disrupt things to the degree that they say, we either have to crown him as king or kill him. And he forces their hand. He puts them in the position where they have to make that choice. He puts us in the position too. Jesus doesn't allow us to simply examine him at our leisure. He puts us in the position where he says, crown me or kill me. Those are your two options. And when we actually go about that, and here's, the, here's what I have discovered is the most beautiful part, is that Christianity, when you actually take that step of, of, of obedience, of trusting, of following, which is the, the step of actual acceptance, is to follow, you will discover that Christianity shifts from probable to certain. And the reason it does that is because you discover along that, along that path, as I did, is not only is Christianity intellectually credible, there are good reasons to believe what we believe, but it's also existentially satisfying. It actually begins to meet those longings of your heart. It begins to shape and change you and your life in a way that, you know, bottom line is, before you can even examine whether or not Christianity is true, here's the thing, you should really want it to be true. Because what it talks about is what your heart longs for. Those things that you chase after in this world, those things I was chasing after in the world, what you really, come on, what you really are looking for is Jesus, whether you know it or not. What you're looking for is Christ in that relationship, in that career, in whatever it is. You're looking for Jesus. And when you take that step of, of obedience, you'll find that existential satisfaction that you long for. Jesus says it plainly, if you follow me, you will know the truth and this truth will set you free. The freedom comes, but it comes as we follow. That's something that I discovered along the way and moved Christianity from being plausible to being certain for me as well. I want to pray for you. God, as we encounter this topic, God, I feel like I'm, I feel really, really ill-equipped to be the one speaking about this stuff tonight. And so God, may you take my words and may you cause all to fall away except what is important, except what is true, except what is necessary. And Lord, I pray that in spite of my words and, uh, and through my words, God, you would touch people's hearts tonight. Lord, as we now go into a time of fellowship and discussion, I ask God that you would help each and every one of us to grapple with the questions, to think deeply, to examine our hearts. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalogue of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon. Thank you.